Kirchen. They're sort of special to us. Yeah, Baby Phoenix arrived last night. I think we have a picture. Shoot, come on. Yeah, come on. That's, um, that's sort of special to me. That's my, that's my niece. That's my niece by blood, so that's, that's special. Um, yeah, Amanda is a devoted uh, listener to the audio archive. And so here's what we should do. We should, uh, we should just let a, a shout of joy go up, and she'll hear it, okay? She'll hear it later this week. Y'all ready? We should do that just to get, but it has to be loud because we only have this one little microphone. So if you're like real introverted, this is going to get real uncomfortable. All right, y'all ready? But, but it's just a gen- generic, we're just going to shout for joy. Ready? One, two, three. Awesome. That's how much we love you, Amanda. Awesome. Um, yet another reason why I love the vineyard. We just do weird things just whenever. If you want to this morning, uh, why don't you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. Today is Palm Sunday. Kind of a big deal. It's the beginning of Passion Week when Jesus entered Jerusalem to do what only he could do. While y'all are turning there, I'll just, I'll just tell you about a few things that have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with today's message. Is that cool? Yeah, um, this is kind of fun. We've just, um, we've just been encountering like way more angelic activity lately. I don't know, has anybody else experienced some of this? But angelic activity is through the roof right now. And um, uh, a couple weeks ago when we were out on tour, uh, everywhere we went, there were just angels with us the whole time. And what's really cool about it is, because you guys know me, especially the guys who really know me, uh, I don't really talk about this sort of stuff. I don't really don't see this sort of stuff. I'm a prophetic person, but that's not really the way my prophetic gift displays itself. But while we were on tour, um, everywhere we went, people were coming up to us and being like, hey, we just saw like, like this angel standing with you and behind you and here and there. And it was, it was people who didn't know. So we would, we would go someplace, and a guy would, God would tell me this in Atlanta. I'm like, ah, cool. And then when we got to Charlotte, another guy who doesn't know anything, just shows up and goes, yeah, there's this giant angel, he's with you guys, and when you talk about the goodness of the Lord, his wings come up. And, and then he's just followed us back here, too. He's just been hanging out. We've, uh, we've had, uh, just had some angelic encounters. So um, I only tell you that for a couple reasons. Number one, like, um, heaven is real. Jesus is real. Uh, angels are real, you know? Uh, what's crazy, in the church, is, like, we talk way more about the devil and demons than we do about God and and, and angels, like, it's really real, and uh, it's for everyone, it's not just for special people, it's, it's for everyone, God, he just sends these angels out, and they can, uh, they can help, and uh, a lot of times, uh, a lot of times, you know, you're never alone, you, Jesus is always with you, the Spirit's always with you, the Father's always with you, and oftentimes, there's, uh, there's angelic company, so just, just a little FYI for you guys, uh, angelic activity, all right, everybody cool? All right, cool. I uh, want to read some scripture to you this morning. This is uh, uh, the classic Palm Sunday scripture. This is Jesus' triumphal entry. Uh, Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read the first 11 verses. All right, here we go. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there 
with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Awesome. Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would really rest with us this morning. We just acknowledge, King of Glory, that you are already in the room and... Father, we just want to partner with your agenda this morning even more. Father, I ask that even now that you would make us more aware of your presence, more aware of your spirit. We just just as a a church say, welcome Holy Spirit. You're welcome to be here with us. Father, I ask that you would illuminate your word and that you would pierce our hearts, even in the hard and callous places, that you haven't had access to in years. We ask it in your name, Father. Amen. Amen. Um, All right. How many of you guys know that Jesus is the king? See, here's the deal. Jesus isn't a king. He's the king. And if you were to put all of the kings who ever lived together, and if you were to take all of their glory, all of their glory of all the kings who ever lived, all the great leaders who were ever around, and if you were to compare them to Jesus, all the, all the kings of all the ages are simply a little tiny candle, and, and Jesus is like the noonday sun, you know? There, there's no king like King Jesus. I, I love what Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 1, 16. He says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and, and in him... All things hold together. Um, I love that scripture. It's, it's Jesus, there's no one like him. Even right now, it says that in Jesus, all things are held together. You realize, like, if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus has perfect rules sitting on the throne, like, our bodies would just disintegrate. We'd just, billions of atoms. But right now, you're sitting in the purple chair, unified, whole, having logical and cogent thoughts for the most part, because Jesus rules right now. There's no king like him. There's no one with glory like Jesus. And um, not only that, one of the reasons that we love, we love Jesus and one of the reasons that we love his presence and one of the reasons that we, that we just want to acknowledge the kingship of the Lord Jesus is because Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom. And so anytime we, anytime we get around Jesus, we get around his kingdom. When I talk about his kingdom, what I'm talking about is his perfect rule and reign. So anywhere the Lord Jesus is, the rule of heaven begins to infiltrate that place. And what that means is anywhere Jesus is, peace, joy, love, healing, comfort exists in that place. That's the reason that we, 
that we so value the presence of God because we know that when we begin to experience the presence of God, we know that when we begin to encounter the presence of God in a tangible and weighty and real way, we're not just getting a goosebump, but we're getting the, the heavenly reality of love, joy, peace, patience, and the power of God. We're getting His rule and His reign. We get Jesus. You don't get, you get Jesus, you get His rule and His reign. Any place you find His rule and His reign, you'll find Jesus. They come together. And it's one of the reasons we just, we so value the presence of God. We so value, uh, we so value what Jesus taught His disciples when He said, hey, you guys should pray like this. You should pray, you should pray on the earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's a presence of God prayer. That's a kingdom prayer. That's a, that's a King Jesus prayer. And as we turn our hearts to the Lord this morning, one of the things I want us to realize here at the beginning is this, is that Jesus is a brother. Uh, Jesus is a suffering servant. Jesus is a friend. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Lamb that was slain. I mean, we could do this forever, right? Jesus is the bright morning star. He's the root of Jesse. He's the son of David. But at the end of the day, he's the king. You know, I mean, like, Jesus is my friend. Praise him. But at the end of the day, he's a king. You know, Jesus is the merciful savior. Praise him, you know. But at the end of the day, he's a king. And we can't lose sight of that. You know, one of the things, one of the things that, uh, that, that, that this understanding will do for us is it will cause us all to find our orbit around him. Like, Jesus is my friend. Great. But he's also a king. And because he's a king, I should find my orbit around him. Jesus is the son and I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just a planet. I'm just a moon. And I find, my, I find my spot in the universe around Him. Around His goodness, around His, around his compassion, around His mercy, around his, around his love. There's truly nobody like Him. And so one of the things that we see in today's passage is uh, what we're looking at here is we're looking at the entrance of the King. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, Passover preparations are beginning, and the city is starting to swell. Uh, Jerusalem was not a huge city, okay? Maybe by ancient standards, it was kind of a big city, but it, it, certainly by today's standards, it wasn't a big city. Like, when there wasn't a festival going on, Jerusalem was a pretty small town, uh, thirty to 60,000 people. They're, they're not really sure. Pretty small town. But during, during festival, like a Passover festival, the city would just swell. And some estimates, some estimates say that there would be close to a million and a half people hit this little spot, okay? So can you imagine this? You're a small town, not much bigger than Campbellsville, and then once or twice a year, but especially over the Passover, just people, hundreds of thousands of people would just flood into a city. Uh, you guys ever been here on 4th of July? Yeah, it's, it's like that, only more. And so the city would just, just explode. And uh, that's, that's, the, that's the scene that Jesus is walking into here. And, um, and the city is just, it's alive and it's buzzing. And at this moment, when Jesus is, is beginning to make his final approach into Jerusalem, Jesus is just on fire, okay? He's absolutely on fire. I mean, he is healing the sick. Uh, he's, been, he's been tangling with the scribes and Pharisees, making them look foolish. Uh, Jesus has got such great buzz right now. He's going in on his final time. The city is on fire. Jesus is on fire. And then, 
things begin to change. But before that, Jesus uh, sends a couple of his disciples to a village. And this is one of the most hysterical passages in the Bible for me. These first few verses in chapter 21. Jesus sends a couple of his disciples to a village, and I want you to really imagine what's happening here, okay? Like, in reality. Jesus is about two miles outside of the city. The city is packed with people. It, there's all kinds of just everything. Like, people are, people are selling hot dogs on the side of the road. Uh, people are selling, you know, your lamb and your doves and everything you need to go to the temple. It's a huge festival. And he's about two miles out, and he knows what's going to happen, by the way. He's just told them that I'm going, to be, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be raised up. They don't understand it. And while he's outside the city, he takes two of his disciples, and we, we really need to get this outside of the scripture here just for a second and put ourselves into reality. Jesus looks at two of his disciples, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up to the next village, and I want you to tell a guy, you're going to find, you're going to find a, a little donkey, and you're going to find a colt. And I want you to tell the guy, I don't want you to even tell him anything, I just want you to go grab it, and if he says anything to you, just tell him the Lord needs it, and we'll bring it back. It's really odd. Imagine being the disciple. Basically what Jesus did was like, if we were to update this, it would be as though Jesus said, you know, Patrick, I need you and Glenn just go over to Columbia, and you're going to find a black Cadillac in this guy's front yard. Don't worry about it. Just get in it. Crank it up. If anyone says anything to you, just tell them my boss needs it, and we'll bring it back. That's what the Lord did. Grand Theft Auto. (laughs) And what's even funnier about the whole thing is that there's zero evidence that Jesus had worked any of this out beforehand. There's zero evidence. So he just, he sends his disciples on this little, this little covert mission. Just go take the black Cadillac, bring it to me, just tell them I need it. So even now, one of the things that we're beginning to see is we're beginning to see the extent to which Jesus rules over everything. You, you realize the only, the only way that this makes any sense, the only way this isn't you know, a joke, is the fact that Jesus really is the king, And even though that guy thinks it's his donkey, it's really not. Because when you're the king, you own what? Everything. It it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you built the house. If the king wants your house, he comes and takes your house, right? And so the only context in which go and take the black Cadillac in Columbia and bring it back to me makes any sense is the context in which Jesus is the king who owns everything everywhere. He has perfect authority and he can just do as he pleases because he's the king. Look at verse 3. It's really interesting. Jesus says to you, he says, if anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. Uh, you need to underline one little phrase in there. And the little phrase you need to underline is this, the Lord needs them. Isn't it crazy that, isn't it crazy that there are things that God needs that you have? It's like God doesn't need anything. That, that just sort of like strikes our religious bones, right? Oh, God doesn't need anything. Actually, there's a lot of things he needs, and chances are you have it. The real question is, the real question is this, is, um, is how much of a yes is in my heart when Jesus comes and wants my stuff? 
not just my stuff, but what about like my whole life, you know? You know, am I available to him? That'd be one of the things we need to begin to deal with right now. Am I available to him? Is my stuff available to him? Is my life available to him? To the extent that we have a yes toward Jesus' needs is the extent to which the kingdom can come quickly. See, the yes in my heart is the ceiling on what God can do in a particular time and place. And the other thing I begin to see here as well is this, is that the disciples are partnering with the king. See, Jesus is my friend and he's my brother. And, but at the end of the day, he's the king. And because he's the king, that makes me his subject. And so Jesus says, hey guys, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go up the road just a little bit. I want you to grab a car for me. And I want you to bring it back to me and tell him the boss needs it we step outside of that and bring it into real life again, one of the things that we see is that when God begins to execute his plan, he always executes his plan with people. And so even the king needs partners. Even even the king needs help. Even the king is going to do what he is going to do by taking people like you and I and saying, hey, you know what, I'd really, Kevin, I could really use your help. Would you mind to just go do this and that for me? There's always this aspect of partnership. Anytime there's kingdom rule, anytime the king begins to show up in a territory, anytime the king begins to, to display himself in a city, if we can bring it into context more and more, anytime King Jesus is going to be known in an area, in a, in a town, among a people, he's always going to do it by creating partnership with people like you and I. And so one of the things we have to begin to settle now is, is, is a couple things. Number one is like, is, am I available to him? Like, am I available to him? Is my stuff available to him? Because to the extent that we live with yes in our heart is the extent to which the kingdom can come in a time and a place. I mean, eventually the king will get what he wants. But if we forfeit partnership, we forfeit like, we forfeit the fun and we forfeit the honor that comes from working with the king. You know, Travis, if you say no, it'll only mess up the Lord's plans for a little while because he'll go get someone else, right? No. I'm just picking on Travis. Travis almost always says yes, right? Travis, Travis walks with yes in his heart. But I love this. It says... I want you to notice that Jesus calls and then they respond. And notice that the disciples are pressed into service. Um, it's the people who are close to Jesus who hear his call. Jesus, his ministry is this dynamic and powerful thing. And because of that, there's always these crowds. There's always crowds around Jesus, especially when you read the Gospel of Mark. I always feel so sorry for Jesus because you can't even get a breather. Um, you know, if you've got a great healing ministry, it's sort of like normal, Right? But Jesus always has these crowds. People are always needing something from him. And, um, but even though there's all these crowds, Jesus only gives himself to those who are closest to him. And it's only the inner circle disciples who hear his, who hear his, his plans and who get to share in executing uh, the will of heaven in the earth. And so it's Jesus' 12 disciples that he begins to speak to. And it's really a, it's really a parable and a picture for you and I. You know, a lot of us... Um, 
A lot of us have enjoyed the presence of God in the most generic sense in terms of taking part in the presence of God and being around the Spirit of Jesus in the crowd. But that will only satisfy us for so long. Or it should only satisfy us so long. The real place that we're all called to be is on the inner circle where we can hear His voice and do His bidding. And that's where I want to be. It's about partnership. You know, some are called to go, some are called to give, some are called to do this or that. But it's only Jesus' disciples and His subjects who get to partner in seeing His kingdom come to town. The other thing I want you to notice about the king coming to town is this, is that when Jesus calls and begins to place demands on his disciples, Jesus puts everyone in a place of risk, right? Everyone gets placed in a place of risk. So if we want to be the kind of people who hear Jesus' inner court talk, if we want to hear, if we want to be the kind of people that God shares his inside plan with, and if we want to be the kind of people who partner with the king to see his rule extend into the earth, and one of the things we have to settle in our heart right now is that it's going, to, it's going to put us in a place of risk. Jesus says to the two disciples, go to Columbia, take the black Cadillac out of the front yard, don't worry about it, if they say anything, tell them the boss needs it. How many of you realize for those two disciples that was risky? How many of you realize for the guy who lost his Cadillac it was also risky? Maybe they wouldn't bring it back, right? Anytime the kingdom begins to break in, to the earth, anytime, anytime God's, God's perfect rule and reign begins to break into our communities, it will only break in to the extent that we're willing to partner with God in risk. And it will, cause, it will be risk for every single person. Those that go and those that give partake in risk. If we're the kind of people who want to hedge our bets, we're just putting a ceiling on what God can do in our life. Like if you're not willing to look like an idiot, if you're not willing to be wrong, wow, you know, how many, how many people in here can be an idiot? Like, I, I, you know, one of the things I've learned, I'm 32, I'm almost 33. One of the th- things I've learned after 33 years is that being foolish is very, very simple, you know? I've got a master's degree in that. By the time I'm 40, I'll have a PhD. And really, at the end of the day, that's the only qualification that it takes to be a good partner with Jesus. Are, are you the kind of person who can, who can handle risk Are you the kind of person who doesn't mind looking foolish? Yeah, you see, God's always working his plan through people who are willing to take risks. When he, when he first came to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I want you to take, I want you to take your wife, and I want you to leave your mom and dad, and I want you to leave the, the place that you've grown up, and I want you to go to a territory I'll show you. That's a huge risk. Every one of us sitting in the chairs today are the recipients of, of Abraham's blessing. If it wasn't for the fact that Abraham was a risk taker, you wouldn't be sitting here. There's a really good chance you wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't enjoy the, the fellowship with God. And I love what God tells Abraham. He says, not only I want, do I want you to leave, but he says, go, just, go, just go and I'll show you. So he doesn't even tell him where he's going at the beginning. Just, just go and I'll show you eventually. How would that sit with you? And then there's Moses. I mean, God sends a stuttering God to, to Pharaoh. and says, I want you to speak to Pharaoh for me. Moses is like, dude, I stutter. I, I don't care. I want you to go talk to Pharaoh. The most powerful man on the planet with the most powerful army. God sends a stuttering God. 
you know? And then there's David, and David is just the 16-year-old kid and goes out and kills a giant. God is always, always partnering with people who are willing to, to take risk with him. He's always partnering with people who are willing to take risk. Um, it's just who he is. Here's what I want to say, though. We don't go out looking for risk to take. We just listen for him. See, real foolishness is when you go out and looking for risk to take without listening for him. When we listen for him and take a risk, that's actually kingdom wisdom. Just going out and taking risk, that's just stupid. Why do that? Listen for him. Jesus says in John chapter 5, I only do what I see my father doing. And risk is evidence of trust and it's evidence of loyalty. Look at verse 4. This all took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I want to tell you is this, is that Jesus, at this moment, he knows the score. Like, Jesus knows the score. He's going into town. He knows that he's going to be put to death. Like, no one took Jesus' life. He laid it down. And Jesus knows the score. Sometimes Jesus knows the score by revelation, and then other times he knows it by revelation. See, one of the things that Matthew points out and really highlights this for us is that uh, this whole scene was prophesied by Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. We can put that up. This is great, okay? Way before Jesus shows up, Zechariah prophesies. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Way before Jesus ever shows up, it's prophesied. And can I tell you something? Before Jesus steps one foot into Jerusalem for this last time, Jesus already knows the score. He knows this scripture, and he's working out the details. He got it by revelation. You know what kind of revelation he got it by? The scripture. And when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem on that day, he's essentially saying, I'm the king. What's funny is Jesus doesn't show up shouting, hey everyone, I'm the king. But because he knew the score, he was able to walk in a picture that was prophesying who he really was. And so one of the, one of the applications for us is this, is that in, for, in order for us to be able to walk in our destiny, in order for us to be able to walk in our calling, in order for us to be able to walk in the things that God is saying to us, we have to know what God's already said. There's all kinds of revelation. And one of them comes from the scriptures. Uh, serious students of Jesus know that if we're, going to, if we're going to be in step with God, we have, to, we have to know what he's already said in the Bible. You know, if we want to be uh, prophetic people, if we want to, if we want to be uh, anointed prophets who are able to speak encouragement over, over culture, one of the things we have to know is we have to know what the prophets uh, from long ago have already said because it keeps us in step. And a lot of times, a lot of times, it's the perfect partner for the voice of the Spirit. We need, it's like wings on a bird. We need, we need the present experience of the Spirit, and we need, we need the daily experience of God's Word to be, able to, to be able to get lift off. Jesus knew the score. And so Jesus rides on the colt. And one of the things I love about that 
is the fact that even Jesus took risk. This is one of the great things about the Lord, is that Jesus never requires anything of his followers that he isn't equally willing to do. In, in Mark's gospel, uh, we, see the great, uh, we see this triumphal entry, and Mark's gospel gives us this little detail. It, it says that when Jesus sent the disciples to go grab the colt, that it was a colt that had never been ridden. How many of you know that Jesus took a risk when he put his leg over that colt? <laughs> so Jesus gets on a colt that had never been ridden, and he's riding it into a town with hundreds of thousands of people who are shouting and going absolutely insane around him. Like, if, you, if you've never been around horses, it's hard, to, it's hard to underscore what kind of risk Jesus is taking right now. Uh, I remember as a kid, my, you know, we grew up with horses, um, and my dad was one of the first, I, this is so vivid, I was, I was no older than like six years old, it was one of the, one of the first horses that I, I remember him buying, and it was this absolutely insane saddlebred, which, if you know anything about horses, they're just totally nuts. The whole breed is crazy. And Dad brings this horse home, and she's so beautiful. And um, he had bought her, and he puts the saddle on her, and it, you know she acts all right. Puts the bridle on her, she acts okay. And Dad leaves her hooked to the hitching post for about six hours. It's one of the first. You just see what's going to happen. Nothing happened. He's like, okay, I'm going to try this out. And I remember being down at the barn with him. He unhooks the horse, throws his leg over the saddle, and I'm, I don't even think his butt hit the saddle. And she went completely crazy. I just remember seeing Dad go like 12 feet in the air and land straight on his back. <laughs> the horse ran off. I mean, it was like, you know, it's a half-day thing to get her back in. Yeah. Like, even Jesus takes risks. No one had ever ridden this colt. He's going to ride it into town with a couple hundred thousand people shouting at him. But anytime we take risks, there's always a response. And the response is a lot of times one of the ways that we can see that we're beginning to walk in step with the plan of God. So Jesus tells the disciples, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go grab a colt a couple miles out, bring her back to me. They take the risk. They go and get it. It works out. How would you feel on your way back when you've got the colt? You look at your, your disciple friend, you go, this is good. This is good. This is really good. And then when they get back, Jesus is starting even on the inside. He's going, Okay, got that first thing done, right? Puts his leg over the colt. He's feeling, feeling pretty good about that as well. But not only that, when Jesus begins to ride in on, into town on this, on this little colt, um, Jesus doesn't send anybody else out in front of him to say, hey, uh, crowd, could we, could we get a little cooperation here? Could we, um, here's what we need. Um, when, when Jesus comes riding, I need you guys to shout, Hosanna, um, Son of David, don't pass us by, have mercy on us. Blessed is he who comes. Everybody got that? Everybody got the lyrics? Like, so he, he doesn't pass out the lyrics to the song. He just shows up. And when he shows up, the, the crowd begins to respond to the risk that he's taken, right? That would be a pretty good feeling, right? I'm, I'm in step with the plan of God. 
So Jesus took the initiative, and then the people responded, and they began to take their cloaks off, and they began to throw them in the road. Such a strange thing. Have you ever thought about that? Like, why would anybody take their cloak off and just put it in the road? It's really weird. There's, there's only one bit of, like, scriptural reference for it. It's way back in Second Kings. There was this king named Jehu, and uh, Jehu had a few friends, and in the middle of the night, this prophet, and apparently he was a crazy prophet, shows up because he's been told to go and anoint Jehu king, and he has a little flask of oil, and when he gets to Jehu and his friends, he looks at Jehu and says, hey, can I have a private word with you? Can we go inside? So Jehu goes inside with the guy, and the guy gives him, uh, gives him a prophetic word and says, you're going to be the king over Israel, da 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 pours the oil on him, and then he runs off. And when Jehu comes back outside, his, king, his friends say to him, they say, who is that madman that was in there with you? And it's really hysterical. They say, who's this crazy dude that was in there with you? And Jehu says, well, he's a prophet, and this is what he says, that I'm anointed to be king over Israel. And immediately his friends take their cloaks off, and they throw it on the road, and they say, long live Jehu forever. It's really cool. Like a minute ago, they thought he was total madman, and now they're, they're saying, you can be the king. And one of the things that they're saying then, and one of the things that's being said when Jesus shows up and people begin to take their outer garments off, uh, we, don't, we, we, we have a hard time catching how important this is because our clothing doesn't quite mean as much to us or it doesn't mean the same things to us as it did for them in that day. Like you didn't, no one had a closet full of clothes, you know? No, it, was, it was a big deal. You realize like the outer garment was a really, really big deal. Uh, you remember Joseph. It was a sign of his favor, right? His father made him a coat, and it was a sign of his favor. And it was, it was an outward sign that he was a favored son. It, 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 spoke, it spoke to his life. And so um, not only that, but you didn't have many. It, it, it said something. What you wore was a visible sign of who you were in some ways. And then uh, we also know in one of Paul's letters, Paul makes a special mention. He says, hey, I, I, left, I left a cloak, and would you guys bring it back to me? Like, it was so, like, your garments were so important to you that even Paul would be like, bring it to me. It wasn't just like you could go out and buy another one. It wasn't that simple. There was, they were important. And so when people begin to recognize um, the, the spirit on Jesus, and when they begin to realize this is the king of glory, they begin to take off their cloaks. And what they're really saying is, everything I have, all my wealth, all my abilities, all my talents, all my strengths, all, everything that I have, I just, I lay it down and let it be a road for you. Let it you can ride upon my back, God. You know, the king of heaven can just come in and you can, you can ride upon everything I have. Not only that, but it's a, it, was a, it was a sign of, in some ways, a, a prophetic sign of transparency. I'm going to take off everything that, that, that hides me from, from the outside. I'm going to lay it down before you. And it's a way of just, like, revealing ourselves before the Lord. And in a lot of ways, this is the essence of worship. It's to acknowledge the king and then begin to respond before him. It's to acknowledge the king and then to begin to take our position before him. And not only that, but they began to cut down palm branches. And palm branches were a sign of victory. Uh, There's a scripture in Revelation chapter 7, and, and we also know from Maccabees, this old Jewish warrior guy who took over the temple. Uh, but, but the palms were, were a sign of victory. And so people were cutting down these palm branches and they were taking off their cloaks. And it was, a, it was just a giant show. Which is really great because 
one of the things that, that we, should, we should be able to see here is wherever, wherever the king is, there should be worship. Like wherever the king shows up, there should, there should be worship. There should be an expression. Any time King Jesus shows up, there should, be, there should be something in us that moves and there should be some sort of an expression. It's the reason that we, that we value worship around here. It's, it's the reason that we, we don't want to be in a huge hurry because when, when the presence of Jesus is among us, we want to we be, begin to respond. When the King of Glory comes in, there's only one appropriate response. And it's worship. And all of this has a prophetic edge. We've looked at one of the, one of the prophetic parts of, of this scripture. I want to look at, I want to look at one more because the prophetic edge of this is really, really dynamic. If you look in Psalm 118, I want us to read about, about several verses. This is a messianic psalm. It says, Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. So how do you go through the gate? By giving thanks. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Verse 25 there where it says, O Lord, save us. That's that word, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us with boughs in hand. You know what boughs are? Branches. You getting, this, you getting the picture here? The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us with branches in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. It's a prophetic picture. Where is Jesus going? He's going to be crucified. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. So everything that was happening, Jesus knew the score and there was a prophetic edge to it. Jesus never said, worship me, take off your robes, cut down the trees, and someone hands out the lyrics to the song. No, he just came in and the people began to, people began to respond and one of the really cool things about this picture is this, is that oftentimes worship puts us in prophetic pace with the Lord. It's one of the things we see over and over is people who worship just end up naturally being in step with who God is and what he's doing. Like we don't have to, we don't always have to ask God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Would God show me your ways? God show me what you're doing. God show me your plan. Reveal to me your plan. What is the plan for my life? God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do? See, a lot of us waste more of our lives asking them what we're supposed to do. Really, all you really need to do is you just, you need to worship. And there's something about worship that puts you in prophetic step with who he is and what he has planned. See, Jesus comes in, the people respond to him in worship, and they actually end up acting out the prophetic picture of what God had planned long ago. Did everyone in the crowd know that Jesus was going to be crucified? No. Did everyone in the crowd know that the king of glory had just come in? came in maybe maybe not but there's something about worship that just puts you in prophetic step with who the lord is uh in the gospels when mary is with jesus uh right after lazarus is raised up and right before jesus is is crucified just right around this time jesus goes and hangs out with mary martha and lazarus 
And at this dinner that they give him in his honor, Mary comes in and she pours out $40,000 worth of oil all over Jesus and she wets, she wets his feet with her tears and she wipes his feet with her hair. And, and, and then it really makes the disciples aggravated and they say, you shouldn't have done that. You know, that money could have been used for the poor. And Jesus looks at him and goes, no, no, you guys need to shut up. She's done a beautiful thing. And, and one of the things that no one in the room had caught, caught sight of, but Jesus knew, was that she had anointed him for burial. You realize Mary had no idea what was about to happen, but the overflow of her heart put her in step with what God was already doing. You know, it, you know one of the ways that we can be victorious at the vineyard is just be a worshiping church. Like, we don't, we don't, have, to, we don't have to grind in prayer to get the plan strategy. We really don't. I'm becoming more and more skeptical of the, of the, of the grinding in prayer for, for the planned strategy when it's divorced from being a worshiper. I'd way rather just be the kind of church where we just say, God, we love you. To the extent that we, that we just acknowledge his presence, we'll always be in step with who he is. We'll be the Mary who, who is just at the right moment pouring out the right thing, you know? So we just worship, we respond to who he is, and then we find out that we're walking in the plan of God. Why does it work like that? Well, one of the reasons it works like that is because worship always points home. Uh, every, every piece of scripture that I can find, when we get a picture of the throne room, it's always surrounded by worship. There's just something about who God is, that, that if you're going to be in his presence, if you're going to be around the king, there's always worship going on. So to the extent that we begin to enter into worship now, is the extent to which we begin to enter into the eternal and worship is always pointing home and it puts us in step with his plan. Like, worship is the destination. One of the things that we need to grab hold of is worship is actually the journey as well. And when they're worshiping, they begin to cry out. They begin to say, Hosanna, which means save us. And it's, and it's really... It, it's, it cuts two ways. When they begin to cry out, Hosanna, save us, one of the things that the crowd is beginning to say is, God, we realize that Jesus is the deliverer and that we need delivered. And at the same time, Hosanna is a praise to God for sending a deliverer. It's, it's like all of this all in one. And, and one of the things that we need to, as a church, especially a worshiping church, is we never need to be too far away from saying, God, I, I still yet need to be delivered. Like, there, there are multiple layers of deliverance that need to occur in our life. Uh, one of the things we've been, we've been talking at, 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 at staff quite a bit about this sort of thing, of, of how, how easy it is to know things about God apart from experiencing the reality for ourselves. Like, we could take a test, and everyone in here would get the answer right. Jesus is loving Savior, Redeemer. The real question is not, can you answer, Jesus, can you answer correctly, Jesus is loving Savior, Redeemer, but the real question is, have you experienced love, salvation, and redemption at all anywhere in your entire life? It's like, come on. Like, not only just, and not just the big picture stuff, not just like you got plucked out of hell and into heaven, but like, has Jesus done anything? Can you say at any point in my life, I used to be a scoundrel and now I'm a lot better? <laughs> or whatever. I mean, like, you know, I used to be a drunk and now I'm not. I mean, one of the things that, the spirit is really beginning to say to us is you know we don't we never need to be too far from saying when the king of glory comes in king of glory i need your deliverance because you're the only person 
You're the only place where deliverance actually comes from. You know, it'd be a real tragedy to like die and come into his presence and him just say, wow, you know, I really love you and we could have done more, you know? Just because I... Ah! That was a really good word, by the way. Like, it's, 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 it's not okay for us in five years to be the same bound up people that we are right now. Like, it's not okay for us to have the same addictions that we have right now. Can I tell you something? Like, Jesus isn't mad about your addictions right now. The thing that pains his heart is for you to live your entire life with him. Like, he's, he's not offended. He's not freaked out. Like, you can be a total cokehead. The Lord is not freaked out. You know what freaks him out? The thought that you might choose to live a total cokehead the rest of your life. That freaks him out. Freaks me out, too. See, a lot of times we live with our bondages, and, and, and after a while, they don't become, they're not just shackles and chains anymore, but they become fashion jewelry accessories. See, bondage is, is never fashionable. It never looks good. And a lot of times what happens after a while when we walk in bondage is it begins to take, we begin to g- grab our identity from it. Well, I'm an eating disorder. That's who I am. I've always been. That's who I'll always be. I'm an eating disorder. No, you're not. You're like, you're like a son and a daughter. And he wants, to take the, he wants to take the shackle off of you that you've been wearing like a necklace. There's nothing beautiful about it. And one of the places that we begin to get healing is when the king of glory comes in, we just say, you're terrific. Would you save me? I mean, that's what worship really is. You're the king. You have all the power. I am merely your subject. And the only way that I can come approach you is just to begin to acknowledge your greatness and my weakness. And I just really need you, God. You know, we never need to be too far away from Hosanna. Get too far away from Hosanna, nothing much changes in your life. When we begin to move in Hosanna, we begin, to take our, we begin to take our garments off. We begin to uncloak ourselves before the Lord. We become transparent. Say, everything I have is, is yours. and You can just, the best thing I have, because that's what the cloak was usually. It's the best thing that you personally owned. You just lay it and let the king ride on it, you know. It's my very best thing. It's just, it's just a road to keep your chariot from getting any mud on it. couple more things here. Look at verse 10. So the whole, the whole town is showing up for this. They're beginning to cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Look at verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. I want you to underline that word stirred. And they asked, who is this? In the midst, see, worship is no small thing. In the midst of worship, the entire city gets stirred. And that word stirred there, it's the word that we get our word seismic from. It's the root word for our word seismic, as in platonic plates moving. This is really cool. It's the same word that Matthew uses 
in chapter 27 when Jesus is crucified and it says the earth shook. Same word. And then when Jesus is resurrected and there was an earthquake, same word. See, one of the things that happens here, see, I want you to see this. Worship is no small thing. When, when we become ravenously excited about who God is, when our hearts, when, when who we are becomes totally shaken with the King of glory, like even the earth began to respond to this thing. Like, like the burial, crucifixion, and resurrection, it, it had already started like way back here. There was, this, there was this seismic shift that had happened. Like a lot of times when, when we're worshiping, like more is happening than we even know. Like, things are, things are moving in the Spirit that can only move by worship. Things, things, are, things move that can only move by the giving of a heart. And not only that, but I, I really love it. Look at verse 11, verse 10 again. It says, the whole, the whole city was earthquaked in the heart. They were earthquaked in the heart. And they asked, who is this? See, worship is, is not a, a small thing because because when the church worships, when, when the king of glory is held in proper esteem, it causes people to ask the right questions. See, evangelism isn't always just about going and telling somebody about Jesus. Sometimes the very best evangelism is just going and telling Jesus how great he is. Because it will cause the cities to ask the right questions. Who is this? And then the crowd begins to respond. What? Well, it's Jesus, the prophet of Galilee. See, like one of the one of the one of the ways that our city will become to know Jesus in a powerful and dynamic way, it happens when we become true heartfelt worshipers. I'm not saying that we shouldn't go and tell people about Jesus at work. No, that's ridiculous. That's just stupid. But one of the things I am saying is that's not the only way to reach a city, and one of the great ways to reach a city is for me to give my heart to him. Here's what it looks like. People began to ask, who is this? What they're really asking is this. Why are you guys throwing the palm branches down? Like, why are you taking off your cloak? Like, why is everyone shouting, Hosanna, save us? Oh, it's easy. Jesus, the Savior, is here. Like, one of the things, one of the things I hope that this town eventually asks is this. I, I really hope that they ask, or begin to say about the vineyard. Man, why do they make such a big deal about worship? You know? why, why, is, why, is it, why, why is it so loud? Like, why, 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 why do people like, shout? Like, why is it that some people like, just lay down during worship and don't get up? Oh, it's, it's really Jesus, the King of glory, just he comes in. And... So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us just to respond to the Lord, if that'd be all right. Hey, Hannah, why don't you guys...